I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. I'm here today hanging out on the porch of the Center for Bioregional Living with Sam Newman-Plotnick, a graduate of our Permaculture Design Certification Program. And Sam came up here, I'm sorry, down here from Albany. I mm-hmm. say up because so many <laughs> of our students come from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But you studied with us in yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, I studied in Brooklyn in uh, December. December and uh, January, November, December. I think it was December and January. Yeah, yeah. We run that course typically late October and graduate in December. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for hosting me in this gorgeous plot of land. Finally, uh, got to check out the Bioregional Center for Living, and wow, it's there's a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot here. Yeah, it's a it's a subtle but significant contribution we feel to the repertoire of examples of permaculture design that are out there in the world. Mm, sure. Maybe for a bit you can, you can go over there, you know, kind of what's on the land and the evolution of the land and what it was like in the beginning and, and kind of where you're at now and where your, your future goals are oriented. And with this, with this property, really the goal was multifaceted, but simply put, it, to have a site where we could have examples of a way to garden, a way to farm, a way to live life in a place that is more ecological, more connected to how the landscape already works, and then understanding that over time, getting a deeper understanding of how does the landscape work here is something that, you know, we what we knew was that we were in the right location for the right price for the right purposes, you know, mm. which is to be able to be relevant to what's happening conversation-wise in New York City around more thoughtful directions that we could take our social evolution, our cultural evolution, and being part of a real awareness that's emerging about a different culture that both Adriana and I really value about the urban, and in particular New York City population, is that there's a very active group of people there that want to create change, create a more you know, healthy society, a society that honors people and doesn't put profits before human health and well-being and respect for a diversity of people. And the uh, subcultures of New York City play a very important role in our selection of this property and what we're doing here because it's about a continuing education for an already existing what I would call sort of radical vanguard of people who want to more proactively engage in creating different business opportunities that meet the needs of many of the people who are looking to be part of the solution, shall we say, not so much part of the problem. You know, and the property is about different technologies that are very accessible and appropriate, we feel, for the, you know, for the climate here and like simple, accessible things like 
big rain tanks that you can irrigate your whole garden and your whole farm operation off of and how transformative that is alone if you just train up more people and offer as a service an installation of really thought out, well-placed, high quality, large volume. Those are a lot of qualifiers. Uh, rain tanks, right? But you take one of these elements of what permaculture design encourages you to pay attention to and you say, all right, on our own property, we're going to max out what we're doing with water. Water is a big theme here, and it's been a very useful one because as a pattern, uh, it replicates all over the Northeast. It's a wet climate. A lot of the landscape is wet. This property has a lot of water challenges, meaning much of it's wetter than ideally for what we might want to be doing with it, like where we have our raised beds here. We put them all up on several cubic yards of gravel that we had brought in a, in a dump truck because over the years we had tried various things in that same spot. Initially, actually, to tell the backstory of some of the, what we discovered in the initial site analysis of this property was that that was contaminated with diesel fuel hmm. because the previous owners who had decided to fill it up because it was wet, which is what I was starting out with, you know, saying it's like it's a wet spot and it's right on the south side of the house and it's right in zone one and so we want to garden it meaning in the permaculture layout of properties has the smart approach of saying look you should really garden all kinds of things that you eat as close at hand as possible to where you live and max that out first before you start thinking that the only way to grow food is to have some separate plot where you grow food so it encourages you to look at your site as far as how you garden it in relationship to your presence personally in the landscape. And this, as a ergonomic terminology, is referred to in permaculture as the zones of use. Zone one is the area that generally in most schools of thought in permaculture is right outside of the house, the immediate area around your house always encouraged as a designer, as a person practicing permaculture, to garden to the teeth zone one. Because you're there all the time. And then zone two is where you're spending, it's a little bit further away, and you can see in this site that layout pattern, where zone two is where the chickens are, and where the goats are, and where the ducks and the geese are, and the ponds, right? So what we've done is we've created an inner zone that has a fence that we inherited that was here that has turned out to be useful. This, there's this green chain link metal fence that those of you who are listening can't see, but it surrounds the whole backyard of the house. And <clears throat> it's convenient because we keep it robust and intact when I do things like accidentally drop a tree on it. Because uh, another thing we've done with this house is we wanted to take what it was a 1950s ranch-style house and show how you retrofit it with permaculture in ways that people could easily wrap their heads around who live in this environment and have things like these raised beds on the gravel pad that used to be contaminated with diesel fuel to teach people who live in urban environments and in New York City about gardening techniques that they can also take back and viably replicate in Jersey City, in Albany, in Troy, in you know, 
any place that's highly concretized and urbanized, that model of bed production of the, the 6 by 8 or the 3 by 8 or whatever bed size you want to invent. So that's, you know, those are the things with the land that we were thinking about. Yeah, that's Teaching great. Teaching people examples. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, obviously every every bioregion has a different microclimate. You know, different soil. Some places don't rain as much. Some places are more humid. Some places this grows and some places that grows. Now, what are some maybe hurdles you came across Um through your farming work that you had not anticipated. Maybe give me some for instances and how did you overcome some of those issues um, specifically on your land? Mm. But sort of humorous examples come to mind like we the issue that first came to hand was animal housing and Mm -hmm. figuring out that we needed it. So sort of an obvious thing that you might figure well of course you would but we would often procure some animals decide to start for instance when we first got chickens they lived in a little closet that's underneath the porch of the house for a long time and they were pooping all around out where we walk and it became something that was very unpleasant and so we figured out that we needed to create a spot where the chickens could live that was a nice protected area that was predator-proof and wasn't right under our feet and could also be potentially um, not located where there was prime land for growing or for some other gardening use. So then we found a spot that was right along the border there that has worked out really nicely. We're there on the edge of a a kind of shrubby, wet area with a raised area that's drier right where their chicken house is. Challenges here have been mainly around water and moisture and things like getting it away from the house. And as soon as, interestingly, as soon as we put in the 1,500-gallon rain tank and directed the overflow from it, we uh, solved a whole water problem we were having in our basement that used to be much worse. It happens very, very rarely to almost never now that we get water in one side of the basement. And it's due to having put in the rain tank. But things like water in the basement, which fortunately it's um, what's described as a walk-in basement which means that one side of it is at grade so water can't ever really like pool up in our basement it'll it would run out the garage doors however it's still less than ideal to be Mm -hmm. a wet basement so it's a pretty wet site and that's why we have right around the house uh i have to count you know we have like four ponds that I created and dug in the time we've lived here, none of which were here when we got here, and they've turned into nice duck habitat that we raised for really high-quality meat source that we're raising on the land that are self-maintaining with very little 
supplemental feed because of the ponds that they're feeding on and all the ponds are outside of zone one and so we can let the ducks and the geese free range and the ponds help to dry up a lot of the wet areas in the sense that what a pond does is it tends to localize the moisture and let it all like get settled into a low point instead of being spread out and having nowhere to go and then often even overflowing into other places that you don't want it to be going. And so, like we were doing on that job yesterday, that series of ponds that you haven't seen yet, but that I'll be digging there, the point of those is to take what was, you can see how water just was sitting on the leaves in that woodland area, and then it would just sort of seep over and find its way to that driveway. But as soon as you dig a pond there, you dig a hole there. Now all of a sudden all that water, instead of not having anywhere to go, you gave it somewhere to go. So I learned on this property how useful ponds are as a management tool for really positively directing and manipulating water flows on properties that now way more than on this site were off-site doing that for clients every summer usually. I'd say on average four to six projects that we're doing every year over the last four years that are sizable and are water solution oriented earthworks that mm -hmm. involve often ponds as well as ditches and sure so this property's challenges a lot of them are water and then we figured out how to turn those challenges often as as much as we could into an opportunity and, and that kind of smart water design it's not really honed in on by conventional hydrology Right. I mean, so that's something that you right. definitely had to take, you know, the reins on yourself and, and, and figure out uh, how to right. implement. I, you know, I really can attribute a lot of the knowledge that I have in my particular specialty to my fascination and passion with water. You know, like often the way I like to tell my story of how I got into thinking about the meta system, Earth consciousness, how I became more aware of that partially was through thinking about where to go swimming mm -hmm. and starting to get pretty scientific about answering that question and starting to look at things like water quality assessment reports for the state of Pennsylvania, where I was living at the time in southeastern PA, which I learned, well, a lot of it has some intact ecosystems, some nice trees growing along the streams and rivers, much of it is actually pretty polluted. And some of it polluted with some of the more really gnarly ones that you have to do further research on to fully comprehend how dangerous they are, like polychlorinated biphenols. I often joke and say fun words to pull out and impress your friends with at cocktail parties. <laughs> <laughs> polychlorinated biphenols that are bioaccumulative. I don't know if that will earn you a lot of friends. Yeah. Probably not. I think, you know, it depends on the crowd. Yeah, that's true. Some people will be captivated. Like, wow, that was a lot of syllables. Is he still able to articulate that? Yep. Not too many drinks in, I guess. You know? So polychlorinated biphenols are the ones that also, as New Yorkers, most of you are familiar with, which is the one that... General Electric contaminated the Hudson with and has one of the largest multi-million dollar class action suits that was successfully won, but still not 
being taken care of to the degree that the legal firm that won the case against them is happy with to like dig into the details of that story because it's an interesting one. And it's an interesting thread because as a kid growing up in the Northeast and researching where could I go swimming, I started to realize, pulled the veil off of what I now call the true costs of the industrial economy. And as I got to see those costs personally, I first decided I wanted to live somewhere where it was a much cleaner, healthier, pure habitat and build a homestead that was, for me, a purposefully designed experience in a purposefully chosen, very healthy, pristine place, which is Pocahontas County, West Virginia, where I had also previously gone and taken these classes with Patch Adams and Gesundheit and these performance art people on language theory called School for Designing mm -hmm. a Society in the early 90s down at Gesundheit Institute in Pocahontas County, which is, they have 325 acres there. And that was when I fell in love with the area and just decided I want to figure out how to live here. Because in a way, if you looked at a map randomly, you'd be like, that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Why would you suddenly move from southeastern Pennsylvania to Pocahontas County, West Virginia? And it had a lot to do with water quality. Because when you use the lens of water quality and you say, I want to stay on the East Coast and be somewhat accessible to the Northeastern Corridor and live in what is the cleanest watershed on the Eastern Seaboard, the Greenbrier River watershed where I lived in a sub-watershed of, will come up on your selection list right away as one of the few candidates that you'll find of a very clean watershed. So I've always been kind of a lay scholar of watersheds and water analysis. When I moved there, I became one of the core members of the Greenbrier River Watershed Association and helped create a brochure that's an educational brochure for people who live in it to first know that they live in a watershed, which right now we're creating for this watershed. I'm in the process of collaborating with a group here called the Rondout Creek Watershed Alliance that was just created and we're creating a brochure similar to the one I created in West Virginia because I think watershed awareness is the foundation of the framework that starts the right conversation for communities to start to plan in a way that makes good design sense of what's happening with their landscapes. Is to start to think of land patterns and land use and design to the economy uh, being adapted to that pattern of uh, watersheds. Wow, and very interesting. Um, so, I mean, you you obviously must have had a lot of kind of unknown variables you had to take into account before your move to West Virginia, right? I mean, it was a little bit of a of a you know a paradigm shift for you. Would, would you would you not say that? Definitely, and mm. it was a purposeful one that I wanted to make that shift to a more minimalist lifestyle where I could just learn how to drink water that was coming straight out of a hill and live off of that was the foundation of the setup that I cared the most about. It didn't even matter to me that I was off grid or grid tied. More what mattered to me was drinking water from a spring and having a life where that was my primary water source. So 
part of the property selection involved looking at properties, of course, only ones that said they had a spring. And I went to all the ones that said they had a spring, and this ended up being, fortunately for this criteria that I had, the worst drought in recorded history on the eastern seaboard, the summer that I was looking for land in West Virginia. I had already knew that that's where I wanted to be because it was years previous that I'd been down there with Gesundheit. And I'd gotten a job with them that enabled me to know that I could leave what I was doing in Pennsylvania as a teacher and segue into more of an adult education format and a consultation enterprise that was permaculture based because they specifically hired me as a permaculture consultant. So Gesundheit Institute was like my first paid gig full-time that gave me housing, a salary, and it was basically half an hour from where I was building my homestead. So it was my transition job to then eventually going completely freelance and not working even on their site anymore. Mm. Over a two-year time period that I invested the money I made working for them in building out the homestead. So the homestead we built pretty much out of pocket with no loans from banks and did over like a six-year time period. So like one year we framed it, the next year we stacked all the bales, plastered the outside, and sided it. The next year we finished it and moved into it. So for two years we were building it and living somewhere else. And by the third year I got it to where I could live year-round on the site. And it was the only property that had what I what I can only describe as a damp, muddy spot. Mm. <laughs> and all these properties said they had springs or streams, and none of them even had a damp, muddy spot because it was the worst drought mm -hmm. in recorded history. So the property turned out to be a beautiful, amazing place to live and had incredible opportunities. But the main thing that was the selection criteria was the spring. And then other other characteristics obviously had to be in place it, and those those were but the the shape of that land when you were up into the Appalachian Mountains is amazingly dynamic over a small amount of space in other words it's a 17 and a half acre property and it literally took me years of being on that property to really feel like I had a intuitive orientation on it and I was scrambling all over it every day multiple times a day and there would still be like spots I hadn't been to. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, I mean, Appalachia hollers, you hear them called, right? So where the spring was, was at the head of a holler. And when I walked at the base of it, there was a damp, muddy spot. And that's all it was. And I turned that into the primary drinking water spring for the entire operation, which was a small homestead with several people with interns all summer long. And I also found springs after I was there for three years that then I piped and gravity fed over to a series of tanks that then were piped and gravity fed into the house. And eventually I built up the capacity of the tanks to be such that I could run it all winter long just off of the tanks. So I learned a lot about water there and how minimal or how kind of uh, large scale can you go with things like ponds, water tanks, springs, what you would ostensibly call low-tech water systems to supply what is usually provided by a, a pretty sophisticated high-tech engineering feat that is a generic part of 
the American suburban landscape, which is a well. But if you really look at it and you say, well, and you say, well, could I, could I just, with a bunch of friends and hand tools, create the typical well that you'll find in a suburban house? And the answer is quite obviously no, because a lot of these wells are like 200 feet deep, have a 220 volt um, submersible pump that requires some of the highest amount of electricity of any appliance you've got in your entire home system. So to me, if you can eliminate your reliance upon it, you're in a good place. I'm not even suggesting that in conventional house situations people try to eliminate using their well. But when you supplement relying on your well with big rain tanks, with gravity-fed ponds, with springs if you have them, all of a sudden the amount that you're depending upon that energy hog that's a grid-tied monstrosity, or at the very least, it's way more technologically intensive, even if you're running it off of, say, a net zero house, which has its own complexities to discuss as far as is it really ecological to run a house entirely off of photovoltaic panels. Because it's, it's not an inherently mm -hmm. ecological thing, even though it's perceived as such. Yeah, right. I mean, just thinking about how interconnected and, and convoluted, um, you know, these dynamics are, how to live sustainably. Um, you know, you said on 17 and a half acres yeah. that that took you years to develop that land and to use it wisely. And to get to know it well. And to get and to I, know I it I think well. that's the theme that I want to, that I, I'm coming back to and that's really been kind of coming to the surface recently as I think an important insight to share with people uh, is this experience yesterday when you were asking me uh, where could I study this kind of thing and I, I honestly have to say I have no, no place to study it. The way that I've learned this is from walking around on so many pieces of property thinking about this stuff and then coming back and walking the property that I'm trying to in particular come up with some solutions or ideas about I have to keep walking it and keep walking it and by the like third and fourth round of that I've got a pretty good understanding of what I'm going to do and what I would what I was suggesting to you yesterday and, and I think is surprisingly um, widespread is the fact that most people who work with water professionally say a landscape architect or a hydro engineer are not going to do that much site analysis. A lot of the solutions they come up with are based on a few site visits and often a lot of hardscaping and engineering, mm -hmm. and very little finesse. When you can do so much more with less when you spend the time in the landscape in a property. You know, and I pay a lot of attention to very subtle, you know, the fact that I was running a whole educational center in Homestead off of what was a damp muddy spot in the middle of the woods shows the ability that I have to take something that's innocuously small and run what is a substantial operation. We were growing food for restaurants, we were growing a lot of our own food for year-round consumption, all with people power, hand tool, and gravity-fed water from springs that weren't even accessible when I bought the land because they were covered in mud. And what I did was spent days digging and digging and daylighted a spring that had, if you went back 200 years to 500 years ago, it was inundated because of clear cutting and cattle ranching. 
So if you look at geography and topography over a longer time cycle and say, well, why would springs get clogged up with silt and sediment? It's because the mountains have been clear cut throughout the eastern seaboard several times. So vast quantities of topsoil slumped into these hollers. And I call it unclogging a clogged artery because you're like discovering it's kind of like acupressure points of the earth where mm -hmm. you're finding this pressure point. They call it in, in um, geomancy or I'm forgetting the term. I think it's in hydro hydrology. It's called the nadir. I think it's spelled N-A-D-I-R. And the nadir is the point where my understanding of it is that it's where the land goes from having an outward aspect or being what's called um, uh, convex to where it's becoming concave, right? So at that point, throughout a lot of topographies in the limestone geology, you'll find springs emerging. Also at that point, if imagine the convex part is forested and then gets clear cut and then gets a torrential downpour, it's all gonna end up right there, right? So, a lot of what I learned was that there's there's springs, and then we I look uh, we've done a bunch of ponds here. All the ponds here are created where I observe a whole pattern of things happening: plant communities that I'm seeing that are growing there, aspects of what I can tell the soil has going on as far as how saturated it is constantly. Digging first small things and waiting and watching. And a lot of those methods really don't fit into must, much of the Western engineering mentality. It's like, we got to keep to the timetables and move forward. And, and I, as a consultant, do have to be careful of balancing that because I do want to create a service around this that has deliverables within a reasonable amount of time. So I can't do some like hippy dippy thing where I'm telling clients, let me wait for a year. Yeah, and not everyone has that time on their hands. Like, no, yeah, exactly. Of course. So, because that's what I'm thinking of is, you know, you'll read in a lot of these books about homesteading. They'll say, wait for a year to, what, who has time to yeah. just hang out for a year <laughs> after they, I didn't. Yeah. And in some ways, let me say though, this is a interesting awareness, right? As we're talking now about it and, and I've had before, which is, um, I wish I had taken more time at my site in West Virginia. There are things, I learned a ton, mm -hmm. awesome site. There are things about where I chose to build that house that were actually not the best choice. Mm -hmm. So, it, like, like what? It was wind blasted. It was more out in the field than it should have been. There was a spot that I initially had considered building, but my brother, when he came to the site, who I look up to, eight years older, has a lot of experience building, lived off the grid outside of Ithaca for 13 years. I'm like, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, who cares about access? Which I kind of agreed with that. I liked that he encouraged me to just build out in the meadow because it was the beautiful spot, which he was right. The five acre meadow that was drop dead gorgeous that we built the house at the head of. So you were just looking out over the meadow, south facing. Awesome spot, tough access issues. But the wind in the winter, no joke. This was a site that I discovered through living there. <laughs> God, levels of wind, like 
40 to 60 mile an hour gusts, sometimes for two to three days. Tore through your tents, eh? That was the one that shredded that first tent, exactly. That was in the summertime. But in the winter, they really get serious. So the house, it worked. It was great. Placement could have been better. It was my first house. Now, you know, I pay more attention to that. And I think a lot more about access. It was my... That's why I call it my permaculture PhD. That was my dissertation. <laughs> now I'm actually in practice. And now I have a decade of experience under my belt after the eight years of homesteading and building that project. Hmm. So I guess to, to conclude, obviously permaculture requires a very detailed, you know, full spectrum, um, long-term analysis of, of all the variables. You know, and people naturally want to get things done very quickly. That's why this kind of technocratic approach is more aesthetically driven over, you know, over just functionality. Um, now, we need people like you. We need compassionate, persevering, you know, leaning forward type individuals to, to do this kind of work and really push the agenda forward. Yeah, of course. Where do you see the sustainability and organics movement headed? I mean, because, you know, the, the pendulum has swung. Mm -hmm. Well, where I, where, where I see it headed from an evolutionary viewpoint, where the trajectory of it goes, is localizing it. Because there's, there's a nice amount of awareness from really excellent writers, from people like Michael Pollan, helping to hip the food mm -hmm. culture population to concepts like industrial organic. That was the omnivore's dilemma? Omnivore's dilemma, exactly. Probably being the, and um, I think he wrote one also just called um, Cooked. And Botany of Desire was his early one. It's a really interesting read. It's about human co-evolutionary relationships with four plants. And does like a whole natural history of each of these plants. So the idea of industrial organic has been popularized or brought to people's awareness. And I would say that the next evolutionary movement for organic, simply put, is to localize it. It needs to come home. It needs to also focus on diverse full diet year round feeding of the local population. And that's where I think it gets exciting and interesting. And that's what we're teaching about. And that's the framework, I think, that is useful for people who want to really be part of the next wave of where farming and gardening need to go so that we make it a cooperative endeavor with how the planet actually works rather than an antagonistic one, which has largely been what the monoculture industrial version of farming has been at war with how nature works and this is about turning around that antagonistic relationship and cultivating a cooperative relationship where we begin to farm and garden in a way that really well it is varieties that are easy to harvest and get good quality large yields from it looks like a wild landscape and these kinds of farms require also a much higher degree of human participation. And the reality of the myth of industrialism has been this notion that there's something valuable about minimizing human labor on farming when it actually 
begs a lot of questions because we've got a prison economy, we've got huge unemployment, we've got massive depression and drug addiction issues and opioid things going on that can, in my view, largely be attributed to a society where people just don't have enough meaningful work to do. And the reality is, much as a technocratic kind of white-collar social mythos doesn't want to admit it, the reality is we need to be doing more physical work with our hands and with our bodies and engaging in nature in things that have dirt and soil and plants and living beings. And it's that separation mythos of the industrial culture that's damaging us on a psychological level as well as a nutritional and physical health level. So the food is devoid of any real health benefits and the lifestyles that are supposedly so wondrous end up being vacuous and nihilistic and people are left feeling meaningless and the purpose that can fill our existence really is simple and right before us and in front of us and it's that purpose of being alive on this planet and paying attention to the things that are right around us as far as the opportunities to cultivate the landscape in a manner that's truly productive and abundant for a diversity of yields so we can replace what right now we're feeding ourselves, housing ourselves, clothing ourselves with, which is largely petroleum and mined and extracted minerals and materials. And if we want to turn that around and instead be wise enough as the ape that we are to actually garden the earth everywhere that we live in a way that creates so many more yields than an earth where we don't garden it and instead we cut it down, bulldoze it over, pave it over so we can truck in what it is that we're feeding ourselves with. So at the end of the day, the solution set is let's boil this down for people that I'm driving at, right? My driving at, which is a funny metaphor, metaphor considering that I, one of the primary problems is the import-export economy and landscapes being turned into nothing other than modes of distribution for products that came from nowhere close at hand. So when you look at what the model of development is for the American economy and land use, you'll see that it's based on the notion of access for trucks to bring in food, to bring in commodities. And what we really need to be doing is retrofitting these landscapes to now garden every niche, every open patch, every place that hasn't been polluted with things that people can use to substitute the stuff that's trucked in. And it's actually realistic to say, could we, on a regional scale, seriously create the volume of stuff that we're consuming that's being shipped in from all around the world? It's very conceivable. If you're willing to take the time to say, where are the appropriate places to locate these different activities and how do we do them in a way that's thoughtful, biologically based and as a lot of human management uh, as part of the formula. And this is the part that I think is important for people to understand because I think it's actually quite exciting, quite interesting and not a turnoff to an intellectual society to say, well, if our, I don't know that I'd say our culture is intellectual. 
but people who are listening to a podcast with me are the the listening public of this particular broadcast uh, are likely to appreciate the fact that this is about jobs that respect human intelligence, human dignity. It's about the ability for a person to walk a landscape and know how to harvest and when to harvest and what to do with animals, plants, water that is in that landscape uh, requires a fairly high degree of knowledge. Just like it, you know, it takes a, a high degree of knowledge to know how to do all kinds of specialized work in the technological fields. If we get specialized about farming and gardening in a way that truly is participating with the complexity of how wild ecosystems work, you're talking about a much higher degree of human intelligence about things like management regimes for what are multifaceted landscapes. And that's part of why there's inertia around it as a process that needs to be happening in this country because we have a sort of cultural assumption that anything that requires more work is inherently a bad idea. But what we lack the understanding of is when that work is actually using human calories, human sweat equity, it's not using chemicals, it's not using oil, it's not using a tractor even. And what you'll find is that this is also what international aid agencies, why they're behind agroecology is the best way to feed the world's people, is because they're saying, if the way you farm is mainly with people power and hand tools, and you get this amazing diversity of harvests that require very little maintenance and effort because they're so thoughtfully and abundantly integrated. So it's like this wild ecology, but it's a farm. That's what agroecology, and that's what all the international agencies are saying the best way is to feed people. And what I'm getting at is the work for me as an educator, the work for the organic movement, the work for this country to achieve food security is to start to say, how do we begin to garden and farm in a way that is what the UN calls agroecology? But what I'm getting at is that the big evolutionary leap for us that I think we need to concentrate our efforts on is encouraging more Americans to want to be farmers and gardeners because we do need a higher percentage of people to be growers to really achieve the quality that we're looking for. At the end of the day, there is no other way to get to truly high quality food without more people being really awesome, caring, conscientious growers. Right? It's about human participation. And that, that, it's, it's interesting, I think, when I put it that way, you can see how it's like that's a pattern that's a myth without, that, that perm, permutates throughout our industrial society is the notion that, well, somehow in education, we should try to just cut down on, you know, the amount of people that are involved in teaching. And let's just try to, like, turn schools into this place where we've got huge classes with maybe we could even just have kids watching video screens and doing online education now. You know, when the real direction that any practical person who gets close to schooling knows who's been a teacher or involved in education. You, you, everybody knows it's about classroom size. 
It's about student-to-teacher ratio. You want to get a better educational experience? Go to a school that has smaller classes. Anything other than that, it might be a good educational experience that is equivalent to a place that has really small classes with really high teacher you know, ratio, with very small student body. No doubt about it. Any good educator is going to agree that that is a superior educational environment, right? Same thing is true when you think about gardening. The more people per plant area you have, the better a job you can do as a grower. And one of the fallacies of the industrial notion has been, and the organic, industrial organic, and a lot of the local organic suffers from the industrial attitude of thinking, how can I max out a lot of labor from a few number of people because it's such a pain in the ass hosting all these people. When a lot of the reason for that is because their farm design isn't based on an integrated low-tech water system for their interns or for their hot water. They're not being thoughtful enough about the food setup and giving people things like rice and beans that they can sprout for themselves that you're buying in bulk. Right? So there's layers of design that aren't part of how a lot of the organic farmers go about doing their thing because they're kind of caught in that same industrial mythology that you should be trying to get a lot of work done with a few number of people. And when I'm suggesting the new paradigm is totally antithetical to that entire model and it's actually the inverse. We want to get a lot of work done with a lot of people. The goal is not to depersonalize production. The goal is actually to increase the amount of human participation and bring production back into biology and out of the hands of uh, uh, assembly line technology production. For some things, sure, but not for food. Food is this sacred experience that needs to be understood as such and over time we need to recognize that the opportunity for us to actually garden the earth wherever we are is a, a huge gift that we're being given that we're missing if we continue to not accept it. That's why we need to reflect on these ancient ecological practices and go back to the roots. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be complex. Yeah, exactly. So I thank you for um, articulating a very very nice distillation of some very, very dense, nuanced uh, areas of discussion. I think that was great. Um, Thanks. I yeah. welcome the viewers yeah, and the listeners to, to tune in more. And I think uh, we will definitely be churning out some more audio material in the coming months. Uh, thank you so much, awesome. Andrew. I really awesome. appreciate that. Yeah. I love listening and I learned a lot. Totally. Thanks, yeah. Sam. All right. Be well, folks. Enjoy your day on Earth.